So I'm not going to do something a little different. Our text today is pretty long, 30-some-odd verses. And uh, I'm not going to read it all at once. I'm going to read the first 15 verses, and we'll work through the rest of them as we get there. So pull along as I read, uh, I think I'm going to start in verse 3, chapter 4. So he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give will the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I have to come here to draw water. Alright, I'm gonna pray. So join me if you would. If you don't, I understand that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for these students. And we pray now that at the end of a long day, many of us are tired and a little dull in the head because we're tired, and that you would uh, grant us awareness, grant us ears to hear and eyes to see and soft hearts, I pray. Show us yourself, Lord Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So, uh, one of my favorite Christmas movies, this is probably my second, next to the best Christmas movie ever, which happens to be Die Hard, um, it is a Christmas movie. Um, is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? Yes, and uh, one of my favorite scenes is toward the end. Uh, so Clark Griswold's big present to his family is going to be a pool, and uh, his bonus check is what he's going to use to finance the pool. The check hasn't arrived, and it arrives at the last minute. And the family is so excited; he's built up this anticipation. He opens what would be the bonus check, and begins to read it. And what he finds is that his boss, Frank Shirley, has suspended the employee's Christmas bonuses. And instead, he has a one-year membership in the Jelly of the Month Club. And then, what follows is this epic rant. And it's, it's beautiful, actually, almost. And uh, I'm almost ashamed to try it. So good. I'm going to try it. So, uh, here's what Clark says. Hey! If any of you are looking for any last-minute gift ideas for me, I have one. I'd like Frank Shirley, my boss, right here tonight. I want him from the, brought here from his happy holiday slumber over there on Melody Lane with all the other rich people. And I want him right here, right now, with a big red ribbon on his head. I want to look him straight in the eye and tell him what a cheap, lying, no-good, rotten, poor-fleshing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, hopeless, heartless, fat, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-lipped, worm-headed sack of monkey crap he is. Hallelujah. Where's the Tylenol? It's actually a wonderful rant. It brings joy to my heart a little bit. And actually is, is uh, 
as he explains, his his half cousin, whose heart is bigger than his head, uh, actually goes and steals, kidnaps uh, his boss Frank Shirley, and brings him to the house. Anyway, um, I think we can identify with Clark Griswold. Uh, this has never happened to me. I've never had to kidnap my boss because he canceled my 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 bonus check. But we all hate misers. We do. We all hate misers. We we dislike people that have lots of wealth. Not just because they have wealth. That's fine. But because they're not willing to share it. And implicitly because of my need. I have this need, and you have all that wealth and resources, and you're not willing to share it with me. Now, that could be good or bad. Uh, here's where it's particularly bad. I think, deep down, each one of us is convinced that God is a miser. That God himself is miserly. And it's my burden tonight to try and prove to you that I think you think God's a miser. Um, and some of you might be offended by that suggestion. I don't think God's a miser. Um, but many of you sit down and read the text. And some of you are thinking, yeah, that's exactly what I think. Because he's always telling me things not to do. Like things I think make me happy, he's telling me not to do. Things that I really want, that I think I should be able to have. I'm not supposed to have those things. And he's got all those resources, but he's distant, and he doesn't give me what I need, that makes me feel joyful and fulfilled. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I do think God's a miser. And what I want to argue tonight is actually, I think it's worse than you think. I think you actually want and need far more than you ever admit. I think your thirst and hunger for life is much deeper than you realize. And therefore, you're actually angrier at God for not providing for you than you realize. But the truth that's confronted with us, that Jesus confronts us with is, uh, God's generous love and Christ's offer of life. We really deep down, I think, believe God is miserly. But God is generous. And we see that in Christ's offer of life here. So, uh, a couple things as we move through the text. And again, it's sort of broken up strangely tonight. But first, the unexpected offer. And then an exposure of need. And then signs of life. So, the first thing we have is this unexpected offer. And frankly, uh, in, in an age and a culture where we're used to all kinds of crazy offers, we're constantly bombard, bombarded with unbelievable offers. Uh, this is a really strange one. First of all, Jesus is traveling in an area where, frankly, he should not be. He lives and works in two areas, Galilee, which is to the north, and Judea, which is to the south. And in the middle is this place called Samaria. And it's sort of no-man land for faithful Jews. The text makes the point that he has to go through there. Some people read spiritual ramifications into that. Maybe. He had to go through there. That's the way you get from one place to the other. And Jesus being a man, and being a long walk, he's thirsty. So he stops at this well to drink water, because that's where you get water from, wells. And uh, if you don't know that, because you're city folks, you may not know that, but I had a well growing up. And uh, it was good. Anyway, the uh, unexpected offer is unexpected for lots of reasons. And the first of which is, Jesus himself is an unexpected offerer. He asked this woman for water. And if you look at the text, it looks a little gruff. It's not meant to look. Not, she wouldn't have taken it as gruff. She took it completely the opposite, which is, we're not supposed to talk. She sort of flabbergasted, not by his brashness. How dare you ask me? It's more of, how could you ask me? 
And, and John makes the note, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, there's a long cultural history of animosity. Uh, these cultures don't like one another. They don't trust one another. And uh, not only would a Jew like Jesus not talk to a Samaritan, but certainly not to a Samaritan woman. There's other things against her. The fact that she's there at noon means she might be a person of some poor reputation. We'll see reason for that later. Um, but all these things add up to her conclusion, you should not be talking to me. How is it that you are talking to me? So, we have an unexpected offerer in the person of Jesus. And uh, I just want to make a real quick mental note that some of you will be sitting in your, some of your classes, maybe it's a history religion class, and you'll get fed this narrative that Christianity has been an oppressive religion. And no doubt there have been some abuses that have happened over the years. Uh, but by and large, you look at this, and Jesus has the precedent. He enters cultures and respects people and brings them life. That's what he's out to do. He is uh, no respecter of racial, historical, or even gender prejudices as, as we see them as he engages them in the text. So, um, Jesus is an unexpected offer, and he makes this extravagant offer in verses 10 to 15. She says, how can you ask me for water? And he says, actually, lady, if you knew who I was and the gift I had to give you, you'd be asking me for living water. Pretty impressive. Strange line of argument. And she really struggles with the incomprehensibility of it. Uh, verse 11. Uh, how do you get this living water? You, know, you don't have a bucket. How do you get it out of there? And then verse 12. Uh, who do you think you are? Are you greater than Jacob? Because she knows this area. And this, she's pretty proud of her well. You know? uh, are you better than Jacob? He gave us his well. And he's his self and his cattle. Uh, and it's actually a really impressive well. Like wells, you'd really like this well. Um, you know, this happened like a thousand years before Jesus. It's still giving water a thousand years later. It's still giving water today. Yeah, it's pretty good for a well. Three thousand years of fresh water. It's actually built on a spring. It, it is in some ways its own source of living water. And she wants to know, hey, who do you think you are? Because I uh, think you're better than Jacob. He gave us this living water. It's running for a thousand years. It's amazing. And what Jesus is saying in verses 13 and 14 is, uh, yeah, I have this greater water. Everyone who drinks this water here, lady, they're going to be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water I give becomes in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Uh, my water is greater. It's a life-giving water. And Jesus is speaking metaphorically, if you didn't get that. Like, this is not some new Gatorade or Propel kind of super endurance drink. You know, you take a sip at the beginning of the marathon, you never stop the water. That'd be great. Uh, but he's working off the metaphor of thirst that makes a lot of sense in an arid culture where water's hard to find. Uh, Jesus is offering some kind of active life that produces life. And uh, now I'm going to ask you to do something that's really hard for you to do. I want you to imagine, this is hard, Imagine someone you don't know, a stranger that you don't trust, offering you something that's too good to be true. Has that ever happened to anybody here? Everybody, right? At some, I mean, if you're a college student, you get offered stuff from strangers all the time, like marketing goods, ads, whatever. And uh, that's what's going on here, really. 
a stranger is offering her something that's too good to be true. And what's your typical reaction? Deep suspicion and cynicism. What do you really want from me? What do you really want from me? Uh, for the best four minutes on this in our culture that I've seen in a long time, you can look it up. It's Jerry Seinfeld's acceptance speech for the Clio Award he just got a week or two ago. The Clio Award is an award for advertising. And Seinfeld <laughs> is brilliant. It really is brilliant. It says, uh, thanks, I've always wanted one of these. I don't know what it is. I love advertising. We're convincing people to buy junk that they know will leave them unfulfilled. But from the moment they want it to the moment they have it, it makes them happy. And like I'm happy right now. This moment I have this trophy, I'm happy. When I leave the stage, I'll no longer be happy. He's just being dead honest. And that's how cynical we are, too, about the things that are being sold to us. She's cynical and suspicious. We're cynical and suspicious. Uh, But Jesus says, and this is right, verse 10, if you knew the gift and the giver, if you knew who I was and what I'm giving to you, your suspicion would erode and you would beat down the cultural barriers between us asking me to give this to you. That's pretty impressive. I mean, think about in your own life, people were handing out full rides here for the last three years of school. And you knew it was true. What would you do to get that? Or people were handing away your dream job. And all you had to do was sign on the line. And you heard enough reports that it was true. What would you do to get that? You would break all kinds of social conventions. What do I got to sign? Got to take my shirt out. What do I do? I got to run around the cathedral seven times? I'll do it. You know, you do whatever you need to to get it. And Jesus is saying, if you knew, you'd be asking me. So the gift must be great, and this must be a very generous giver. Um, she doesn't understand. You see that in verse 15. I'm going to read verse 15 through 18 real quick. Uh, the woman said, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. She answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're correct in saying you have no husband. For you've had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. Now, if you're reading along, this seems like a rather abrupt change in direction. Uh, pretty odd marketing strategy if you're trying to convince someone to buy into your water. Uh, if, you, if you're a marketing major, they probably don't teach you how to insult people. Um, it seems to be what's going on here. Uh, and that's not what's going on, actually. If you're in marketing, what they'll tell you to do is you need to find out what people want and need and address it. And what Jesus is doing is exposing her need. He's exposing her need. Um, he says, go bring your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he knows things about her that uh, she knows but doesn't want to talk about. She denies it. And he's like, yeah, you have five husbands. Well, we don't know her story. Uh, you know, she could be a black widow. She killed them all. Or uh, they could have all tragically died, or she could be a terrible cook, and they all divorced her. Uh, That was possible on that side at that time. Uh, We don't know her story. It could be tragic and sad. It could be evil and wrong. But five husbands, and she's living with somebody else now. And what Jesus is doing here is saying, hey, lady, you just think I'm talking about water, because you don't want to come to the well anymore. No, I'm talking about a deeper need, and you're not getting it because you don't see your need. In other words, you haven't got a proper view of what I call your wanter. The human heart is a giant wanter. And we're always wanting. 
We want peace. We want love. We want joy. We want excitement. We want fulfillment. We want purpose. We want. And somehow, like, do you think you got it all? You're fine. You just want water. No, you want a lot more than water. And the proof is you've had five husbands and you're living with someone else right now. Five husbands, wouldn't you give up by now? Wouldn't you just give up? No, you're not giving up. Why? Because you want something. So she doesn't recognize her thirst. And we don't either. Uh, uh, this is how much we want life, lady. You just keep going. And we're the same way. I, I have this problem. I'll make a joke of it. It's not good. Uh, I don't drink water. How many of you heard me joke about not drinking water? Oh, that's my thought. Well, that's good. Uh, I drink coffee. And uh, not a lot of coffee either. I just don't drink. Actually, I'm feeling pretty dry right now. Um, and it's not good. And part of it is because I don't recognize my thirst. I'm just not good at recognizing my thirst. This is not good. Any of you uh, nurses, pre-meds, nutritionists, or people with common sense, you would recognize that my not drinking water is not very good for me. It produces all kinds of unhealthy symptoms, and those would be true. Uh, like, constantly I'm asking, like, why, why, why am I foot cramping? And I'm always trying to think about other things. And the easiest answer is probably, you don't drink any water. And occasionally I'm asking myself, what about a headache? And I never come up with, you don't drink any water. But those are the answers. And uh, just like I can be blind to my thirst, we're often blind to our thirst for life. And the story of Scripture, are you going to get me water? The story of Scripture is um, God has created us in this world for life, peace, purpose, relationships that work, justice, beauty. And we ache for those things. We were made for that world. But that world is lost. But we still ache for them. We still ache for them. And that thirst doesn't go away. And so what we do is we turn to insufficient thirst quenchers. Uh, we don't drink water. We don't do what we're supposed to. We, we find substitutes, insufficient ones. And uh, Jesus is putting our finger on that. Five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. And she doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to talk about it because she knows it's wrong. She knows it's wrong. She knows she's guilty. She's ashamed of it. She doesn't want to talk about it. But this is what she's looking for life in. Uh, C.S. Lewis, 50 years ago, was asked, uh, which of the religions of the world gives to its followers the greatest happiness? His answer might shock you. While it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is the best. If you want to be happy, just do whatever you want. That'll make you happy while it lasts. And that's Jesus' point, and that's our reality. Uh, we think we know what's best. We think we know the way to life. We're constantly looking for substitutes, for thirst quenchers, things to fill our ache, our need, our void, our desire for purpose. We're always looking for something. Uh, and we think we have the right to tell God that he doesn't know what he's talking about, and we should have this if we want it, even if he says we shouldn't want it. Um, I think an example of this, modern research has just informed me that artificial sweeteners are not really good for you. Not because they cause cancer, because they make you fat. Anybody read this in the last year? So, uh, it's really interesting because I grew up in the rural south, surrounded by people that were... Who's been to the rural south? It's hand raised day in, in, in RUF. Okay, um... You didn't know that, I'm sorry. Uh, if you go to rural South, you'll see uh, a higher proportion of overweight people. Um, just the way it is. And um, my family had a lot of them. And uh, besides their interesting eating habits, 
um, and smoking habits. The other thing that struck me as a kid and mystified me was how much diet food and soda they consumed. I never could figure it out. Like, all you eat is diet stuff and drink diet stuff. How is it that you're morbidly obese? Now, that being mean. Like, my grandmother was morbidly obese. Um, and uh, research is telling us that saccharin, aspartame, and others actually increased thirst. Have I read this? They actually increased thirst. So if your main source of uh, liquid is diet soda, and it's filled with aspartame, it makes you want to drink more diet soda, and then more diet soda, and then more diet soda. It also uh, increases your craving for carbohydrates and stimulates fat storage. So, when you drink diet soda, it makes you crave more diet soda. Man, this is terrible. It's terrible for like 30 years of people. And um, the spiritual equivalent is what we do. We are constantly turning to insufficient thirst sequencers that never ultimately satisfy and are not good for us. That's what we do. Momentarily makes us feel good, quenches the thirst for a moment, stimulates the hunger, go back to it, repeat. It kills me. And uh, that's what we do. And uh, frankly, this, the Bible says this all over the place. And one of the clearest places it says it is way back in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah just paints a very clear picture of, oh, he's talking about God's people here. In chapter 2, God says, uh, my people have done two things wrong. Two things. They do it all the time, these two things together. They, uh, they forsake me, the fountain of living water. I'm here to give them life. They forsake me. They turn their back on this fountain of living water, and they go and they dig their own wells, their own cisterns that are cracked and cannot hold the water. And, man, that's the picture of our lives. That's what we do. God offers us, and, and Jesus here is offering us eternal life, um, vitality, the way of peace and joy. And we say, that's all good, but I don't want to play by your rules. I'm going to do it my own way. Oh, it's springing leaks. It doesn't quite work. Well, I'll just keep trying it again. And that's what's going on here with this lady. I think for the most part, she hears Jesus offer water. In verse 15, she says, okay, I'll take your water. What do I have to do so I don't have to come back here? Just give me water all the time, the physical water, because I don't want to come here. And what Jesus is saying to her is, no, you think you need more of what you've got. What you actually need is something different. You need something different altogether. You need the living water that I'm trying to offer you. And so the last part of our text, uh, verses 21 to 29, I'm going to read. I'm going to go through this quickly. I wish I had a whole other sermon to talk about this, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, right after this, this lady, realizing Jesus is on to her, has sort of a supernatural knowledge of her, uh, says, oh, um, I guess you're a prophet or something? Because you're telling me all this stuff about me. And she wants to talk religion. And maybe she's trying to throw him off the track. Maybe she just wants to talk about what differences they have. But Jesus manages to stay on track and talk about the two things he really cares about. The eternal life he's come to give and this woman right in front of him that he cares about. So verses 21 to 29, Jesus said to her, woman, or lady, uh, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this place or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming. It's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him 
must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So she left the water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? It's all kinds of wonderful stuff here. I wish I could, again, do a whole other sermon on it. They said, I just want to show you the signs of life that Jesus makes clear. He's offering her living water. She doesn't quite get it. But here I think he still spells out for us what the signs of this eternal life would look like. She wants to talk about the intricacies of their differences. Should we worship here on this mountain, like the Samaritans do, or in Jerusalem? And Jesus wants to say, well, it doesn't matter. Okay, we're right. You're wrong. Salvation from us, but it doesn't matter for long, because the hour is coming where it will not matter where any of these things happen, because God will be so present in His Spirit, and the truth will be revealed in such a manner that His worshipers will be everywhere. This is the promise in the Old Testament, that the knowledge of God will be... Like waters covering the earth. And that's the reality we have now. There are people that know God and spirit and truth all over the world. That's what Christ has done. So uh, Jesus' first sign of a remarkable life is worship. He's saying, hey, I, I will come. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. It's one of those things. Yeah. Anybody else need to go to the bathroom? Um, um, you are tied to these rituals and things, but... Jesus is saying, I'm coming at the right time in order to make worship not just something you do in a place every now and then, but something that you are in your heart, a worshiper. And we're all worshipers, but you will worship not something you're ignorant of um, or something that you make up or your own pleasure. You will worship God in knowledge, rightfully, uh, and in spirit. doesn't mean you'll do it perfectly, but you'll really know God. And uh, you will worship him clearly. You'll want to do so. And uh, that's the first. Uh, the second thing is that you'll forget yourself. You'll worship God and you'll forget yourself. This is sort of a, just a, a cue I find in the text. I think it's really interesting. Uh, verse 28, the woman left her water jar, went away into town, said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Uh, so she came to the well to get water. And her excitement or mystery or stupefaction above this whole encounter, she actually leaves the thing she came for in the beginning. Now, that's easy. People forget things all the time, important things, right, John? And uh, we all do. Um, it's not just that that she forgets herself. It's that uh, she's forgotten sort of who she is. She, she's lived a life, it seems, of somewhat private shame. The fact that she comes to get water at noon is extraordinary. You get water in the morning, you get water at night, you do it in crowds, so marauders won't kidnap you. Maybe she had an off day, but it seems that chances are she's avoiding people. And the fact that she tells Jesus, I ain't got no husband, she's trying to hide. She's trying to hide. Instead, she goes back to the town and announces to everyone, hey, I've had a really messy life and y'all know it. That guy does too. Y'all want to go meet him? I don't know a bigger indication that someone has sort of forgotten themselves in that. I'm going to hide myself in shame from the people I know and from Jesus to that guy really knows me and I feel like y'all should get to know him. And that's the third thing that she, she wants to share. 
come and see someone who told me everything about myself. Uh, and she hasn't got it all figured out yet. It's pretty clear. Uh, could this be the Christ? She doesn't know. But she's excited about sharing him with others. So these are the signs of this eternal life that Jesus is offering. You know God and you worship him. You forget yourself. And you can stop hiding and guarding yourself from all your guilt and shame and actually come out and come to other people and say, you know what, I've met someone who knows exactly what I'm like all the way down, who knows everything I've done, and he still wants to give me a good gift. That's what Jesus has done here. He knows everything she's done and wants to give her a gift of life. I've met someone like that. I don't quite understand it all. It's too good to be true. But I think you should come and be a part of that. I think you should take a look at that. Man, that's a sign in your life of the life that Jesus is offering. So, I would have to say at the end of this text, God's not a miser. Really, deep down, we are people that hunger and thirst, and we quickly run to all kinds of insufficient thirst quenchers. We're looking for life. We're desperate for it. We downplay it, but the truth is, we're constantly trying to pull life together. For some of you, it's success. For some of you, it's reputation. For some of you, it's just the image of having your stuff together. For some of you, it's physical pleasure. For some of you, it's escape through drugs and alcohol. I don't know what your thing is. I know there's a thing. All of us have a thing. And Jesus knows what it is. He's offering you this life instead. Uh, because he's generous and he's good. Uh, you may have seen a picture of this a couple months ago, maybe a year ago now. It's of a man named Benicio Riva. Benicio Riva is now 53 years old. Uh, he had a fairly normal childhood until about age 15 when uh, he began to uh, develop growth all over his body. He probably knew it was coming. His uh, mother had the same condition. The, the condition is called neurofibromatosis. It's uh, what the famous elephant man had back at the turn of the previous century. So he has these growths all over his body externally and even internally. It's led to a number of surgeries. Uh, he wasn't supposed to live past his early 20s. Um, but it's made him sort of objectively, this sounds mean, but I think he might even agree, the world's ugliest man. Uh, and when you see the picture, you're actually not clear what's going on because you can't tell what he is. Uh, but Venetio uh, lives in a small town in Italy, and the people there are used to him. The children are still definitely afraid of him, but he has a job, and he rides his bike every day. Uh, but he largely lives sheltered away. Um, and a number of months ago, he was uh, elsewhere in a large throng of people uh, when Pope Francis saw him. Now, if you don't know this, I'm not a Catholic, uh, nor am I a Catholic apologist, um, but I'm not going to beat up Pope Francis right here. Uh, instead, I'm going to applaud him. Because what Pope Francis did at this moment was walk toward Vinicio Riva and embrace him for like a minute straight. And uh, Venetia later on said, uh, he had no idea what condition I have. He doesn't know if I'm infectious or not. And he didn't say anything during that whole time. But I heard the message. It was that he loved me. And I felt that. It's a beautiful thing. You should go look at the image. Uh, it's really interesting and powerful. And you should read the story. It's even more powerful. But I think the story we have here is even more powerful than that. Jesus knows exactly what kind of woman she is, and he comes to her. 
And uh, he doesn't embrace her, but he engages her in a way at a great cost to himself and his reputation. His disciples have no idea what he's doing. This is wrong. Later in his ministry, he'll be accused of being a Samaritan, uh, which is a pretty underhanded jab from his, from his enemies. Um, and uh, more than that, uh, he knows exactly what it's going to cost to offer this woman eternal life. There's a clue here in our text uh, in verse 23. The hour is coming, and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And whenever, in the book of John, that phrase, the hour, is spoken of, he's talking about the hour of his death. The moment in time and the events of his death and resurrection that is necessary for the great exchange where he bears sin, he grants righteousness, and all the things that he's promised, like truth and the Spirit here, become a reality for his people. He knows this is what it will take for this woman to have life. And he does it for her. And we do the same thing about ourselves. We are people with great thirst. And if you don't know that, ask God to make it clear to you. Really, ask God to make it clear to you. What area of your life are you just sort of letting go because you're so thirsty for life? And you think it's okay, you'll excuse it. Um, but it's not good. And, uh, and see as well. His great extravagant offer of life here. It's very costly to him and cost him his own life. But he wants to give you an all new life that wells up within you and produces a life of worship where you forget yourself, love others as well. Alright, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the, uh,